chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Now, you will remember that we've been going through this hey, methodically and, and verse by verse and sometimes word by word. <laughs> but in the context of this chapter or this last part of this chapter that we're going to look at today, Peter is talking about how it is better to suffer when you are following Christ and doing the good thing, the right thing, rather than suffering for doing a bad thing or an evil thing, a crime or anything like that. And um, that's, that's sort of the key part of this, of this uh, last passage. Go to verse 16. Let's just get that quickly. He tells them, "...having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing." That's, that's much better, and I think that, that makes sense, and we've looked at this, um, or these verses actually before, so, um, and I've told you as we've been progressing through this epistle that Peter is talking to people that are undergoing some heavy persecution and suffering, and so it is just fitting for him to, to speak about these things and how to suffer in the right way and so on, but we, we won't delve into that again today. We've been doing, doing that as we've going, gone through this, but Peter's point is that if you have to suffer, you see that there in, in verse 17, that if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing. So if you suffer, suffer for the right reasons, all right? Don't go put yourself in harm's way just because you think you're going to get some, something out of it, all right? That's not the way that Christian suffers. And that all, all of this comes back to having a good testimony, all of this. And we've explored this as well, you know, as we've been going through this epistle. Now we start to join this text today in verse 20, and, but just for the sake of getting the context, let's start in verse 18, start reading there. Verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So you see there, Christ is our example of suffering in the right way, of, of suffering for doing good. He says, the, the just suffered for the unjust. He is the just one, we're the unjust ones. He suffered for us. And you know what? If Jesus didn't suffer in that way, it would have been impossible for any of us to be saved if he didn't go through that. Peter says that he suffered that he might bring us to God. That's the only way for us to approach God at all. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus also made this abundantly clear. You can go to John 14. Keep your place here. And many of us know this verse in John 14, verse 6. Many of us know this, you know, this is the sort of verse that you find on coffee cups and t-shirts and decorations in people's homes and, and that's fine, all right? I'm, I'm not knocking that at all. It's a great verse, John 14, verse 6. Um, but when you put something like that up on a coffee cup or something, please put the entire verse and I'll show you why. John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to God. He is the way. 
All right, so why do I say put the entire verse? Well, look at the rest of the verse. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the only way. It's the only way to go to God. It is through Christ. He's the only way to be reconciled with God. Okay, the only way that you can make peace with God is through Christ. Now, some people think that this is, this is a very hateful thing to say. You know, they'll say, well, my grandma is a good person, you know, and I've got a friend that's a Muslim, and they're very good people, you know, and I love them very much. Do you really want to tell me that they're not going to go to heaven? And it pains me to say, but yes, if they die in that state without Christ, they are not going to heaven. And it, it's because of justice, you know, uh, they will receive the just punishment for their sins. It really doesn't matter how good they are or how much you love them. If they are outside of Christ, they are not saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of God. Saved from His wrath. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the only way. Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Why do I say exclusive? Well, he, he excludes any other way that you can think of. Any other way that a, that a man has devised in his mind is excluded from this. One way. There's one road to God. That's through Christ. People call it hateful. God calls it grace. And it is grace because it's a free gift. None of us deserve this. He was under no obligation to save any of us but he still sent his own son to take our punishment on him, uh, on himself, you know. The punishment that we justly deserve, he took on him so that we can be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. You know, Peter says that, that Jesus suffered for our sins, and you can come back to 1 Peter 3, by the way. Jesus suffered for our sins by being, being put to death in the flesh while being alive in the spirit. And we, we also discussed this uh, in the previous lesson. Look at verse 19. It says, okay, so quickened by the Spirit, that's the previous verse, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. We looked at this last time, who these spirits in prison are. Uh, Peter sort of continues on that in verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few that is, eight souls were saved by water. So, like I said, we looked at these spirits last time. We saw that they were fallen angels back in the days of Noah. That's what Peter tells us here. They, they fell in the days of Noah. And we looked at what Jesus preached there and all of that. So, we're going to leave that for today. Look at verse 21. He says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this is one of those verses <laughs> right, that people read and they, they, there's just one, one little part of it that stands, sticks out. You know, that's, your mind just highlights that. Baptism doth also now save us. <laughs> I don't know if that happens to you. It happens to me okay, <laughs> when I read the Bible. Stuff like this stands out to me, even though I know what the Bible has to say about it. But, you know, there are just certain teachings and ideas that are so prevalent uh, in our culture, maybe something, you know, that we've been exposed to for many years in our history that are so prevalent that the moment we read something like that, it 
gives us a minor episode, you know, of, <laughs> whoa, okay, what is this? And we're sort of off balance here and thinking, okay, what does the Bible say about this? Now, that is when it is important to take a step back, all right, read the entire text as a whole, don't just grab a little piece like that and run off with it and tell everybody, hey, listen, baptism saves us, <laughs> all right? There, there it is, because there it is, it, that's true, all right? Calm down, take a deep breath, all right? Let's read it again. Verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Stop there. Peter starts off by saying, the like figure whereunto baptism saves us. All right? So in order to, for us to understand um, what kind of baptism, or what does he mean by saying baptism saves us, we first need to look at what this like figure is that he's talking about. All right? It'll just help us because that's the context. You remember lesson one of our basic discipleship material? Get the context, all right? So what he's saying when he's saying the like figure, he's telling us that he's using a physical thing to explain a spiritual truth, all right? We, we find this many times in the Bible, and the word used in the Gospels for this is a parable, all right? It's a likeness. It's, this thing is like this thing, all right? It just helps you to understand this. We know that Jesus used many parables to explain spiritual things to people, and we find that the New Testament writers do that as well. We find parables in the Old Testament as well, and it's actually a good technique for those of you that want to teach something to somebody else. It's a good technique to use. Use something that they are already familiar with or something that they might have experienced and explain something more complex or more abstract to them using that thing, all right? No analogy will be perfect, all right? <laughs> but it'll help to understand that new thing because it becomes simpler for us to understand spiritual things when it is compared to those things that we've experienced or that we've seen, all right? Now, the like figure that Peter uses to compare baptism that saves us with is found there in verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So Peter sees the events of the biblical testimony of the flood or the great flood that happened in the days of Noah as an analogy or a, a parable, a like figure for this wonderful salvation that is made available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at what happened during that time. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. I'll remind you, and you can keep your place here because we're going to keep on coming back to, to 1 Peter. Genesis chapter 6. And I'll remind you that Peter says that the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, it's the first book. <laughs> verse 3. Genesis 6, verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God set a timer, and he said, man will only live for a hundred and twenty years, and then I'm going to destroy all of them because of the wickedness in their heart. They have... The, 
the, the thoughts of their hearts were only wicked continually. From, from the morning till the evening, it was only wickedness, wickedness, wickedness. And God couldn't stand it anymore. And he said, all right, Noah, and you will see that uh, in verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So he said, Noah, get some wood and build a boat. All right? And um, Noah built that boat. God gave him the exact specifications for building this ark so that he will be able to survive the flood that's, that's going to come. And also his family and some animals with him. I think most of us are familiar with the story. And I always find it funny, you know, when I hear skeptics talk about the, the flood of Noah and they say it's a lo- it was a local flood. You know, they, they want to try and convince us, no, no, you don't understand this, you know, the, it's an ancient book and the stuff got lost in translation and this and that. And it was just a local flood. So according to them, Noah had to build this boat to survive this local flood. So imagine the free state being completely flooded, all right? And Noah was in Bloemfontein. All right, Noah, build a boat. You're in Bloemfontein, build a boat so that you can survive this flood that's coming in 120 years' time, all right? (laughs) That sounds silly, doesn't it? Why didn't God just tell Noah to move? Go to the northwest. It's going to be safe there. (laughs) All right? I can figure that out, and most of us can figure that out. Don't you think God can? God did it with Lot, didn't he? Right? He, he told Lot, Lot, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Get out. And he did it. <laughs> All right? Noah had 120 years. He could have settled in another part, any other part of the entire world. <laughs> he could have settled and, and be safe from that local flood. And besides that, if you look at Genesis 7, and go to Genesis 7 and verse 19, We'll read there, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Every single mountain, every single mountain was covered with water. Everything under the whole earth. Look at verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. Every single person that lived during that time was dead because of this flood. They died, they drowned, or they were, you know, stuck in a mudslide, whatever it may be, but they died in that. This was a global catastrophe that nobody could escape. And of course, we know that it is impossible to escape God's judgment just to move from one place to another. All right, Jonah sort of uh, figured that out, right? You can't run from God. You can't do that. So Noah obeyed God and he built the ark exactly like God said he should. And throughout his time of building the ark, we read in 2 Peter chapter 2 that he was a preacher of righteousness. So during this 120 years, jo- uh, uh, Jonah, Noah, Noah, <laughs> Noah was preaching and telling people, listen, there is a flood coming. God's going to judge this world because of your wickedness. Get in the ark. <laughs> it's the only way to be saved. Get in the ark, all right? I think many, many people, many of us, have a strange picture in our mind of what it was like in that time of this great flood. And I sort of think, and I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not co- completely convinced yet, but I, I have a feeling that uh, our coloring books when we grew up and our children's Bible sort of gave us this 
false idea of what it was like. You know, we always see these cutesy pictures of this cute little boat on the water and the cute little animals with the big heads, you know, and this cute man with, with his white beard standing there and smiling. That's not what it was like <laughs> at all. You know, I, I think a lot, of people, a lot of people still have that picture in their mind, but folks, we need to realize that this event was God pouring out his righteous anger and wrath, his wrath, on the entire world, and he did it with water. It was a terrible event. It was, it was terrible. And only Noah and his family and some animals survived. That's it. Eight people of the entire population of the earth survived. Everything else was destroyed by water. I mean, you can just look. I, I think many of us saw pictures of what's going on in Durban and other places in our country right now, and you can kind of get a sense of the destructive power of water. The entire earth was flooded in, that, in those days. But along with the warning of judgment, God also made a way to escape that judgment, all right? which was, of course, this ark that Noah was building. And besides the ark, there was no other way no other way to escape this judgment at all. In those days, you had 120 years to get right with God and to get in the ark. That's it. And that just goes to show you know, how merciful and how long-suffering God is. With all of that, that, that wickedness going on, God still made a way to escape the judgment. He was still merciful on people. And only eight people listened <laughs> to this warning and they got in the ark and they were saved. That's why we're sitting here today, because they were saved. This teaches us something about God's character, doesn't it? You know, he doesn't want anybody to be lost or, or to be destroyed at all. He always gives people a chance to repent. He does. You know, the people of the ancient world, like I just said, had 120 years to repent and to get in the ark and to make themselves right with God. Only a few listened. We read in the book of Exodus, you know, uh, our, our God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses many times to warn him and to tell him, let my people go. Of course, we know Pharaoh hardened his heart, and if he didn't do that, if he repented, his country wouldn't have been destroyed, and his, his, even his son would have lived longer. I mentioned Noah. Ah, oh, I did it again, Jonah, really. It's not even all the same letters. Anyway. But we read in the book of Jonah how God sent him to preach to the Ninevites. Folks, have you ever looked into what the Ninevites did? It's crazy. I can't even mention the things in church, in polite company, the stuff that they did to the Israelites specifically as well. And God still sent somebody to warn them that he is about to destroy them if they don't repent. And even though Jonah went unwillingly... <laughs> We, we know that the Ninevites repented, and they were spared. At least that time, they were spared. There are many other examples like this. I'm sure you can, you can also name a few. But the point is that God is patient. He's long-suffering, and He always gives people a chance to repent. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we see that Peter sees this story or this biblical account of the, of the great flood and how eight people were saved um, as a picture of how baptism saves us. And so that raises a question then. Does that mean that I'm only saved as soon as I get in the water to be baptized? And that's a fair question. That's actually the conclusion that many people have come to. And 
that, that only once you get into, wa- into the water and your pastor actually puts you under and he take, brings you up again, that then you are born again. That, that's what they believe. It's, I believe it's called baptismal regeneration. That's when you get your new life, you're born again. But that's not something that the Bible teaches at all. You know, the word baptism, I think most of you know, it means to immerse. It's to, it means to, to put something into something else and not just water. All right? It's just putting something in something else. Um, an example that I thought of is you can be totally immersed in your work, can't you? We've said that. We, we still say that. We, we are immersed in our work. It'll be kind of strange to say, I'm, I'm totally baptized into, into my work today. <laughs> it would sound strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a baptism of sufferings, that's it. <laughs> All right? well, th- this word baptism or baptize just has some religious connotations to it. All right? but, but the meaning is to immerse. And when we read about baptism, it does often go along with water, but not always. And we actually have an entire lesson about that in our basic discipleship material, where we go through seven different baptisms that are mentioned in the Bible. But the one that, that Peter is referring to here is the one that is explained to us in Romans chapter 6. So please turn your Bibles there. Romans chapter 6. So if you found the Gospels, you go right, you get Acts, and then you get Romans. Romans chapter 6. And now in this chapter, Paul is explaining that uh, the, the question, or answering the question of why can't I just continue living in sin after I've been saved. Romans chapter 6, let's get verse 1, why not? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That makes sense, right? How can you continue living in sin if you are dead to it? So what do you mean I'm dead to sin? Well, continue reading, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. There's that word again, baptized. Baptism, baptized. Once again, I'll remind you, it means to immerse, to be immersed into something, all right? And the moment that you put your faith in Christ to save you, you are actually immersed or baptized or put into Christ that very moment that you believe. And because you are baptized into Christ, as Paul says here, you are also baptized into his death. And, that, and this is it, you know, your old man, the one that likes to wallow in his sin, you know, like a pig wallowing in, in, in the mud, that old man died, and now you are free from that sin. You are free. Sin doesn't have that hold on you anymore, like it had previously. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. So our old man is dead, and it was buried with Christ, all right, just like Jesus was di- like Jesus died and was buried. Look at the rest of the verse. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when you put your faith in Christ and you, and, and you called on Him to save you, you are then baptized or immersed into Christ. And because you are now in Christ, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you are then joined to the Lord. <laughs> You're stuck to Him, and He's stuck with you. So now your old man is dead and buried with, with Him. 
And just like Jesus rose again from the dead, so we also have a new life now, a new creature, a new man that rose up, and now we can live in that life, this newness of life, like Paul says here in verse 4. We can live in that. Now notice, the word water is not found here, is it? This has nothing to do with water at all. And that is because the only kind of baptism that saves you is a dry one. <laughs> you get that. All right. It's a dry one. And that is the baptism into the death and into the resurrection of Christ. That's the only way that you can be saved. Peter even makes it clear. Uh, go back to First Peter chapter 3. Let me just show it to you. He makes it clear that this is not a water baptism that saves you. Because you find in verse 21 those parentheses. You see that? The Akis for the Afrikaans people. All right? You see the parentheses there. Now, let's read this verse again. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Parentheses. Not the putting away of the fourth of the flesh. You see that? Water baptism does not take away the fourth of the flesh. And he ends off this verse. Let's take away the parentheses for a moment, all right? Just remove that for a moment. Let's read this verse again. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see that? That's the entire thought, actually. Um, he ends off the verse with that because it is because Jesus rose again that we can be saved. It's because he was dead and he lives again. That's what we're celebrating to today as a Christian. Well, Christians all over the world celebrate that today that Jesus rose again from the dead. And that's the only reason why we can be saved. Water baptism is not able to wash away the filth of the flesh at all. That can only happen by being in Christ. That's it. And so the only time that we baptize somebody with water is after they uh, have been baptized into Christ. You first have to be in Christ before we can put you in the water. All right? And that is because water baptism actually pictures what happened to you when you were put into Christ. Okay? You will remember, for those of you that have attended a baptism, we're having one soon as well, uh, and then you can see this happening. We put somebody under the water, and we say, well, you have died with Christ when you got saved. Not right now. When you got saved, you died with Christ. Then we bring you up out of the water, and we say, well... Now you are alive with him and walk in this newness of life that we just saw. Right? Now you walk in this new man, in this newness of life. That's the picture that baptism actually shows to us. Once again, it's something physical that illustrates something spiritual that happened. And it's an open declaration that I'm following Christ right now. Um, and now everybody can know that. Um, sorry, I'm just checking my notes here. But that, that's, that's, the, that's the purpose of water baptism right now. It is only to show what has happened to you on the inside. And so the picture that Peter is getting at here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that just like the flood was the instrument of God's judgment on the entire world, uh, some people still managed to pass through that judgment, all right, through, yeah, through God's judgment when they got into the ark. They were baptized into the ark so they can get through the flood. Now just like that, look at what happens when somebody gets saved and he gets put into Christ and now the judgment of God is coming because it is coming, 
We know that there's going to be a day where every single person is going to be judged. And only those that got into the ark of Christ will go through that judgment safely. It's only those. That's why Jesus is the only way. He's the only ark of safety. Okay? Remember that. There is no other religious actions, no other religious ceremonies, or anything else uh, that you have to go through. Just get in that ark. Get in Christ. That's the only way. Look at verse 22. He says, still talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. That's a wonderful way to end off this passage, isn't it? You know, to, to emphasize, or Peter is emphasizing Jesus' victory through his sufferings. He started off talking about Jesus' suffering there in verse uh, 18 it was, and now he ends off with the victory that Jesus achieved through it. After Jesus rose again from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples, appearing to them and um, giving them teachings on the kingdom of God, the Bible says. And after he gave them instructions to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit, they saw him go up in the cloud. You remember that? Acts chapter 1. He went up in the cloud, and we read there in Acts chapter 1 that while they were staring, because, come on, all of us would have stared up. <laughs> so, where are you going? <laughs> all of us would have done that. But all of a sudden, two men stood there beside them with white clothes on, and they said, hey, you men of Galilee, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know? This Jesus that you saw going up is going to come back just like you saw him go up. He's going to come back. Don't worry. He's going to come back. And Jesus also said, I'm sending the comforter. Don't worry. I'm not leaving you without any help. I'll be with you. All right? And that is where Jesus is going to stay. Okay? Until the time that he comes back to fetch his bride, to fetch the church, the believers, to fetch us and take us with him again. But until then, he's busy interceding on our behalf. He's busy preparing mansions for us. And as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he is upholding all things by the word, word of his power. Jesus is busy. <laughs> he's very busy. But you know what? He's never too busy to answer your prayers. That's amazing. That's so amazing. He always has time for us. And now we are looking out for him, aren't we? We're looking. We're waiting. When is he coming back in the clouds? You know, we, we want to see that happen. Um, Paul describes this as our blessed hope in Titus 2 and verse 13. I'll just write it for, uh, or read it for you. Uh, he writes there, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you're looking forward to that today. I really do. Um, because that, that'll bring so much peace in your heart if you, if you know that whatever sufferings, whatever troubles, what, whatever is going on around me right now, I know He's coming. I know He's coming. And He's coming to take me away. Now, this concept of the right hand, Peter says that He has gone and He's on the right hand of God. Now, this, this right hand has always been in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. It's been a place of honor and of power and of authority. And now, after Jesus went up to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God. This is the preeminent or the foremost place of glory and honor, authority, power, all of it. <laughs> it's right there at the right hand of God. 
and all angels and authorities and powers, uh, Peter says, have been made subject unto him, which means that he is ultimately exalted above, far above all of them. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Just so you, show you something about this. Ephesians 1 now. We, we looked at what, what Jesus preached to the spirits in prison last time, uh, but this is part of it. This is part of what he uh, proclaimed to them. You know, we read in Colossians 2 verse 15 that um, we, Paul writes, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. To triumph is to get the victory. He got the victory over them. Jesus won the victory once and for all. And I just love how Paul put, puts it here in Ephesians 1. And look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in, in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, like we just saw Peter said, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet. Everything <laughs> is highly exalted above everything. And now, as, as Paul continues there, he's the head of the church now. <laughs> this is Jesus, folks. This is Jesus. This is why we say he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's not just a fancy title. He really has been exalted. If you, uh, we won't look at that now, but you can go read in Philippians chapter 2 as well, how, how Jesus was humbled first, and then he was highly exalted after he was, after he was humiliated, even by dying on a cross. And we looked at that previously as well. But now he's highly exalted in heaven above all things, and he will be exalted forever. Forever. And what Peter is saying here in this passage is that we should look at how wonderful and how complete the victory is that Jesus brought, or, or that God brought out of Jesus' suffering. He got the victory. And so believers can also be confident that He will also bring out the victory in our own persecutions and sufferings. That's the example here. I'd like to end off just by reading to you 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, which, which echoes this as well. It reads, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us, uh, us <laughs> to triumph in Christ. It always causes us to triumph in Christ and make manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. So right now, now that we know about Jesus triumphing over all of these things and all of his sufferings, all of his enemies, let's go make manifest the savor of his knowledge in all the world. Let's go tell people about this. That's the only way you can be saved. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you uh, for giving us your word. Lord, this is so wonderful to know, <laughs> to know that we serve a risen Savior. <laughs> and that we know you live right now, Lord, and that we know you're so highly exalted, and, that, and therefore we don't have to fear anything, because you are, in, you are in us, aren't you? The Bible does say you are stronger than the one that's in the world, Lord, and, and that is true. <laughs> that really is true. 
Thank you for the amazing examples that you've given us through your life and through your death even and through your resurrection. Lord, help us to follow that and, and to follow you, Lord, and to trust you and to not, not be dismayed when, when sufferings come our way because of our faith, but Lord, to, um, to cling to you and to know that you've already achieved the victory and therefore we don't have to fear. Lord, we thank you for all that you do, and please be with us the rest of this day. Please bless the fellowship as well, and uh, please bless the service to come. May your name be magnified in this place today. Amen. Amen.